Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, I, I've taken that research process once more to uh, to uh, extra extra level, trying to really ramp this up, especially with all the quarantine going on. And so I, I figured, you know. Uh, Greg, Greg Prince of Faith and Fair and Flushing, thank you so much for joining us. We we always just take it wherever we left off when it comes to talking legacy. Uh, there's a few things that that I uh, I certainly want to go, uh, you know, I want to tangent go down the the uh, the detours, if you will. But um, I'm just first wondering, how are you holding up during all this uh, this craziness? Uh Physically, I'm fine. My wife is fine. My cat is fine. Uh, mentally, we're fine, too, I suppose. Uh, you know, cooped up and uh, un- unmoored from usual routines, to be sure. But uh, it could be a lot worse. And uh, we look for it to uh, eventually be better. So we're okay. You know, I was thinking about it in the context of the baseball we experienced last year uh, at some point yesterday, and just thinking about, yeah, the Mets didn't make the the playoffs as we wanted them to, obviously, uh, with that late great push that will always be remembered fondly by Mets fans. But I, I, I one of the things that that you know we almost take for granted those great moments as much as we celebrate them, and especially as Mets fans because of the way over, uh, uh, you know, six decades, it's sometimes been few and far between. But I was thinking about the Michael Conforto walk-off and and just thinking, like, obviously things take off right after that the way we had wanted them to, uh, even though, you know, that was was a day before the pinnacle of quite the great run. Um, but but just thinking about how you take those moments for granted, and there's a possibility some of us, and hopefully all of us, will never do that again. Well, you can't take any great moment for granted you, when it comes to baseball or maybe anything. Uh, you can't take any moment for granted, I think, we're learning. But, uh, you know, where something like that game and that run of games is concerned, we couldn't have known it last August and September just how important they would be to us. We thought at the time it's helping us compete for a wild card and maybe we'll make the playoffs if we're exceedingly lucky and consistent. What I think has turned out to be more important is that, you know, that this is the baseball that we are living off of in a way. I mean, we're living off a lifetime of it where each of us is concerned wherever our memories go and whatever we read about, whatever we watch again, whatever crosses our mind. But I think the fact that those were the most recent spate of games in our lives that they were so compelling that there were games that had our favorite team ripping each other's shirts off, <laughs> the crowding around each other and hugging in ways that here in April, the next year seem unimaginable. Uh, but that's that, that part of it is, is you know, ephemera. Uh, just the fact that if we have to remember what the Mets are like until we get more Mets. It's great that we can remember games that were won as opposed to lost, that we're talking about a team that we really came to embrace as opposed to one that repelled us. Uh, you know, the, the season I've been thinking about a little bit in this context was the 1994 Mets and their season because we had to live off of that for an extended period that went beyond a normal winter because it was a baseball strike. 
And that was an uplifting team in its own way, uh, just by being not terrible the way the 93 team was, because that's what we were measuring them against. So the 93 team was this utter embarrassment, 103 losses, all kinds of shady characters and dirty deeds and people you, you would not invite to a cookie club party. And, you know, they redid the roster to a certain degree going into 94. The 94 team was a competitive team, not a contending team, but a team that kind of pushed 500 and raised our sights and introduced some new players. And then the season ended in the middle of August. And if you were going to miss baseball at all, if you were going to think fondly about the Mets and not, and not just want to skip over them, uh, you sort of clung to these guys and clung to what they did and the fact that they made you feel better and a little more proud to be a Mets fan. And you had to start early with that in the middle of August if, if you were so inclined to not say, oh, the hell with baseball and the hell with the players as well as the owners. And you had to keep that going you know, into what should have been spring training in what, in fact, was spring training with replacement players, which was a whole bizarre other kettle of fish, and then take that into April when the season should have started and Judge Sonia Sotomayor ruled uh, that the owners had not played fair and that they had to get this thing going again. We didn't have a, an opening day until late April, which at the time seemed absurdly late. And that was just a baseball thing. This, of course, is a, a world thing and a life thing. And you know, baseball is just a small part of it, a big part of it for, for folks who care about it, but a, a small part of it in the scheme of things. And I suppose we're we're all left, you know, as baseball fans or sports fans or fans of anything with, you know, the last thing we saw to kind of have and to hold. And, you know, again, if, if the Mets, if the, the 2019 Mets had gone on their, their course, appeared to be, you know, as, as late as, you know, I don't know, the third week of July, you know, we would just be saying, well, you know, 1986 was nice, 1969 was nice, why can't we get a break here? But, you know, we're, we're sort of, you know, I, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even say it's the shape of it because we'll, we'll be happy to have them back any time. But, you know, we, we have something we were excited by, excited then, excited to see where it went this year. But in the meantime... You know, the the most recent clips that anybody shows when it comes to the Mets is, is a game like Michael Conforto beating the Nationals or Pete Alonso hitting a 53rd home run or, you know, Jacob DeGrom securing another Cy Young award, all, all of that stuff. It's all recent, you know, right up to Dom Smith hitting that walk-off home run on the last day last year. So, you know, they're good company in hindsight – in the almost present, um, you know, I'm, I'm would not want this to happen any time. But uh, in in the baseball sense, if you if you're going to shut down uh, society and uh, not have baseball, you, you, you'd you'd rather have it come when you're feeling good about your team. I think maybe not so good that you you feel you're being robbed of a once in a lifetime chance to win a World Series. Um, you know, what what if this happened um, uh, in the winter of 1985-86, um, putting, putting aside whatever that would have meant then for the world from a baseball standpoint, well, I, I'd hate to think we wouldn't have had a 1986 season. Um, so for now, you know, it, it's it's kind of a bizarre way of saying I'm glad we're not getting <laughs> – the follow-up to a promising Mets season because at least we had that. And that's all we can have right now. We have that. We have, you know, what, what, what resides in memory and, you know, what we can look forward to eventually. And, you know, that, that's an ellipsis. That's dot, dot, dot. We don't know yet. And, you know, that's the other thing that will carry us forward because that's how we are as people. That's how we are as baseball fans not just Mets fans. So, uh, you know, baseball is there. Uh, they, they, they can delay it. They can postpone it. They can 
force us to think about it in strange ad hoc ways in terms of getting it played eventually. But uh, as Cole Porter said, they can't take that away from us. (laughs) (laughs) The, you know, the 1994 team, uh, the 1994 season stunted a lot of things. Of course, uh, I think most infamously the, the Expo's existence. Um, but when you look at the 1994 Mets and you see that they were 55-58 when play stopped on Thursday, August 11th, the last being a loss 2-1 to one, uh, to the Philadelphia Phillies in Philly, um, it's not, you know, because of the way the divisions worked at the time, they wouldn't have made the playoffs. But it's not out of the realm of possibility they would have played serious spoiler to somebody uh, as well as possibly been a winning team that year. And, and unfortunately, uh, the wins, the, the having a winning season didn't come for another three years. Yeah, I mean, the 94 team was a revelation. It's one of those, it's probably along maybe with a couple of the mid-60s teams, about as forgotten a Mets team as there's been because the season didn't play out. And there were changes by the next year that started late, so you kind of forgot about it uh, heading into 1995. But, you know, yeah, and just, just to recap very briefly, the 93 season was the third consecutive season of things just getting worse and worse to the point where they hit rock bottom, not just the 103 losses, but all the infamy that surrounded that team, uh, Vince Coleman throwing a firecracker at a small child, perhaps not intentionally hitting a small child in the parking lot of Dodger Stadium, but that became a huge story and hastened his exit, which, you know, it was not a very happy Met tenure for a one-time great base dealer with the Cardinals. You had Brett Saberhagen kind of losing his mind a little bit and taking a super soaker, filling it with bleach as a, as a gag and ends up spraying a bunch of reporters, and that's causes another scandal. Got Eddie Murray, you know, a Hall of Fame player eventually, but not a particularly happy sort in New York, and he's kind of snarling at the press. Uh, you've got Bobby Vinnie at the beginning of that, that year, uh, mad about what was written about the 92 Mets in the book, Worst Team Money Could Buy, and then threatening one of the co-authors of the book, Bob Flappish, and the infamous saying, you know, I'll show you the Bronx, and just a, a team that couldn't get out of its own way and, you know, personified, although he, as the, as the saying goes, pitched better than his record indicated because you couldn't pitch any worse. Anthony Young, who lost 27 decisions in a row over 92 and 93, and, you know, he finally wins one game uh, after blowing a lead. He wins it in relief in late July and eventually sent down to the minors again, and he's traded in the offseason, uh, leaving us with a lifetime record of 5-27. and 27. Sounds like, excuse me, sounds like something out of 1963. So we get to 94, and it's a somewhat revised cast. And the Mets made a couple of late spring trades. Jose Viscaino was was received for Anthony Young. He he played shortstop. David Segui was brought in to play first base. These are names that that I I don't think, you know, resonate down the halls of Metziana, but they were big upgrades. And Jeff Kent in his second full season got off to a great start. And Bobby Bonilla had kind of settled in. Ryan Thompson, uh, Jeremy Burnett's young players, of, of whom a decent amount was expected. Todd Hunley, before he was any kind of a slugger, kind of settling in. Uh, Brett Saberhagen, kind of finally not not fighting not not fighting whatever demons accompany him for Kansas City and also being healthy for a year. Uh, the fact that they played competent baseball, you know, that 55 and 58 record doesn't sound like much, but when compared to 59 and 103, it was thrilling. And what, what made it even better, I know personally, and I think that this is where it got me through the baseball free void, they promoted late but what became late in the season, it was just regular old late June at the time, first baseman Sagi had gotten injured, uh, named Rico Bronia, who had had a cup of coffee with the Tigers. They had gotten him in spring training. 
so he would have been at, to Norfolk at the time. Rico Bronia, who like came out of the gate like Jeff McNeil, you know, hit about 350, had a game on, I was going to call it Monday Night Baseball. I don't think it was really called that at the time. The uh, this, this is a bit of a rabbit hole right now, but you should be used to that, Sam. Um, <laughs> they had a contraption in 1994 and 95. Instead of a, a game of the week, which had aired on CBS for four years and for many years on Saturday afternoons and aired on NBC, they decided... The, the Major League Baseball and its network partners have something called the Baseball Network, which was not you know the MLB network that we know today, but an ad hoc arrangement that would air on Monday nights and sometimes other nights in prime time, either on ABC or I think it was mostly ABC during the regular season. NBC would get involved in the postseason, of which there was none in '94. But what, what made it weird? It's not just, oh, here's the game of the week like you would say see on Sunday Night Baseball today on ESPN. It was everybody, you know, would play their full schedule, but you'd only get to see one game, and it wouldn't necessarily be the team you wanted to see. So in New York, sometimes the baseball network game was the Yankee game. If you want to see the Met game, it wasn't like it was running on cable or another channel. It had exclusivity. So the Mets just wouldn't be on TV. And this is 1994, not 1964. And at least, again, in, in other markets where there was only one team, it might not have been an issue. But in New York and Chicago and places like that, you know, half of the fans were going to be unsatisfied. What I remember most warmly from the 94 season, in late July, the Mets were the baseball network game. And I believe... I could be wrong on this one. I know he did it a few times. Bob Murphy did the game with one of the Cardinal announcers. That that was another one of the features of the baseball network is they would take a an announcer from one team, an announcer from another team, and that was your your announcing team for the night. It wasn't like we're sending, you know, Al Michaels and Don Drysdale or whoever to, to do the network game. Um but it was a Met Cardinal game from St. Louis. Rico Bronia, a heretofore unknown rookie, went five for five at a big Mets win. And suddenly it felt like the whole world, or at least the baseball-loving nation, knew who Rico Bronia was, this guy who was on nobody's depth chart coming into the season. And, you know, it was after the All-Star break, and nobody was really paying attention to the Mets. Like, like you said, it was a good record, but they, they were nowhere near wild card competition that year. They were well behind the Braves and Expos in the first year of three division play and the Reds and Astros were fighting out in the central. So one somebody among those four was going to be the wild card. Whoever had the better second place record, the Western Division was being fought between the Dodgers and Giants, but they didn't have such great records. So the Mets were just playing to be good or as good as they could be. And Rico Bronia was like the, the shining exemplar he had nothing to do with 1993. He was certainly, in, in my mind, you know, the the harbinger of a new day. And I was looking forward to the rest of the 94 season featuring Rico Bronia. And then the players went on strike because the owners tried to, I don't think, bargain very good faith with them. And they availed themselves of, of their rights as a... Uh, you know, there's an association, uh, the Players Association, and we were left without baseball, but I had Rico Bronia, and I just kept thinking, I can't wait for Rico Bronia and the Mets to come back. I can't wait for 1995, whenever it starts. You know, we didn't know at the time that it was going to take all winter and into spring to uh, come to a settlement. But Rico Bronia carried me <laughs> as much as anybody through that baseball-free void, the longest baseball-free void until this one. I guess for, for now, it's still a little long. It, that one is still a little longer, but this one is obviously going to blow by it. As it turned out, Rico Bronia had a pretty good career. He only lasted with the Mets two more seasons. He never hit, you know, 351 again. But uh, I think he, I'm not sure, I think he drove in 100 runs with the Phillies 
Uh, I know he made one all-star team with them. The Mets traded him away, I think, because he was injury-prone or had a bad back after the 96 season. I was absolutely disconsolate. They were trading my favorite player. They brought in two relief pitchers who would have fit beautifully on any Mets bullpen you can think of of the last 15 years because they were terrible. Uh, Ricardo Jordan and Toby Borland, and they were here and gone, basically. And the only thing that sort of saved that situation and and kept the whole thing from appearing as if I dreamed it, (laughs) there was a player named Rico Bronia, but he's not here anymore, and the Mets are just terrible again, uh, was they went out and got John Olerud from Toronto, and without fully realizing it, we were on the cusp of a whole other era in Mets baseball, what you know, became the Bobby Valentine Mets, and fortunately they were able to build around John Olerud, and that's a whole other story. So, yeah, the 94 Mets were the, were the kind of team that you could take to avoid, not avoid, but take into a void and say it's going to be all right because I have this to look forward to. It was great last year, you know, within reason, and it's going to be great again. As it turned out that once they started playing in 95, the Mets were terrible for about half a season, and they made some changes. They became younger, and they really turned it on and – between them, the 94 and 95 seasons, if you took parts of it, it's one very uplifting season because they, it was a season that started 25 and 44 up to the All-Star break, which sounds a little light because that, that season was only 144 games because it started late after the strike. But then things started to kick in. They played a little under 500 at coming out of the All-Star break, and then they really just found themselves and they finished 34 and 18. And this is, you know, with rookie Edgardo Alfonso and kids like Butch Husky getting a better look. And, you know, Alex Ochoa had come up. And other players like Kenton Hundley kind of finding themselves a little more. And then, of course, you know, the, the, the beginning of, uh, and it wasn't a very long history, uh, Generation K as we came to know them. Uh, Bill Pulsifer and Jason Isringhaus and, uh, you know, the, the aces of tomorrow here today. So it was exciting. So we, we got to see, it took a while. No, it took a while to get baseball back in 1995, but it took a while for that promise of 94 to kind of rise to the surface. And that in turn got us excited for 1996, which didn't work out so well. But, uh, you know, within a year we were, you know, in the Bobby V era that, that we know and cherish and and I think as as I'm rambling here, I, I think what what it shows how how much about baseball we 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 started and and in a way, the, the the premise of this podcast is about baseball and memory, but it's also like I said about anticipation, and you know ninety four made me look forward to ninety five whenever it was going to get here. The great finish to ninety five made me look forward to ninety six, and eventually. You know, throughout the, you know, once they began to prove themselves in '97 as a legitimate major league contender, you know, all I did was look forward with this team to a bigger and better things. So, you know, well into the new century, and here we are today, uh, looking forward to the next time maybe uh, that uh, the Mets can play baseball. Yeah, the first of the decade. How about that? You know, <laughs> that's basically what we're looking forward to. Uh, you know. Yeah. When 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 it's talking about the Mets and especially uh, the owners, of course, would like to compare and contrast themselves more with the Dodgers, just because uh, Fred Wilpon grew up in Brooklyn, and that's just you know uh, you can't necessarily fault him from a personal level going down that direction. Um, but we we will go on the tangent regarding the way the Mets have mirrored the Dodgers in many facets and. I've, 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 I'm kind of curious because I obviously haven't studied the Giants in terms of the way they would win and lose games at certain points in their history. Of course, they got the John McGraw era that is so uh, renowned. But um, I, 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 my, when it comes to the Mets and the uniforms, I don't think it's talked about enough how they, they may mirror and, and duplicate 
certain eras, Giants uniforms, and I believe, and I'll start looking this up right after I, I well, when when uh, I go to you, um, I believe it's like the 1940-1941 season or something like that, that basically look like Met uniforms. You have a hollow interlocking NY, a white hollow interlocking NY, but if you fill that in with orange, you basically have the Mets uniform. Yeah, well, you know, the the, the NY is not a mystery to anybody who's, who's looked at a picture for five seconds. And that there are, you know, seasons when you go through the archives where it, it is not the – what what we remember is the classic black and orange of the Giants from the fifties, and you know what, what they left New York with. So there, I don't know, you know, I don't know to what extent they did a, a ton of research in 19, heading up to nineteen sixty two. I don't know to the extent they had to do much research because it was only twenty years before the seasons you're talking about, and you know, people who were making decisions certainly had life experience and living memory to uh, think back to 1940 or 41. So, you know, you were calling the team, the New York Mets, not the, not, not the Queens Mets, not the Brooklyn Mets uh, or the, uh, the five boroughs Mets. So, you know, it's, it's not as if the Giants had a lock on the name New York, but there already was a grand tradition of a team known as, you know, New York, NY parenthesis NL. So there was going to be a an implicit link beyond the fact the fact that this you know this, this contraption known as the New York Mets existed to satisfy the void. I'm talking about voids again. Satisfy the void or the yearning left by the void that was left by the Giants as well as the Dodgers. I think the, uh, you know, coming into 1962, uh, you know, both both teams left fan bases behind. You know, after 1957, who were sitting around from 58 to 61 trying to figure out what to do with themselves one way or another. But uh, I, th- I think the, the, the Dodger connection even then was probably more pronounced if only because the Dodgers were a more successful franchise for 10 years, you know, 1951 and 1954, notwithstanding, you know, they were the perennial powerhouse through 1956. There were, there were more Dodger fans, louder Dodger fans in the fifties, perhaps than giant fans. So that was, a good part of your fan base, but they're make no mistake about it. There were giant fans who were ready for baseball to come back here, and as I think we all know, uh, one of them owned the New York Mets, uh, Mrs. Joan Payson. So, you know, I, I think it's too. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have necessarily said this. Uh, until relatively recent years, because of course you're not going to make too huge a deal out of it one way or the other. But I guess it's to Mrs. Payson's credit that she didn't, for for, for whatever sartorial flourishes the the Giants or Dodgers lent to the Mets motif. You know, she she, she didn't necessarily favor one over the other in putting forth a franchise narrative which is to say that today Fred Wilpon most clearly does. And it has, you know, take, taken something of a uh, backlash would be too strong a word, but, you know, enough refutation by people who don't work for the team to say, hey, wait a second, the Mets are not just the linear descendants of the Brooklyn Dodgers. They are the progeny once removed of of, as I like to say, of two daddies of, of the Giants and the Dodgers. But, you know, in 1962, you know, the, the Mets had no choice, and I don't even think it was something they didn't want to do. They definitely wanted to do, to link themselves to, you know, whatever traditions and emotions were left behind by the Giants and Dodgers. You couldn't take their names because those names went west. 
And I think what what they discovered, you know, once they cleaned up at the box office when both of those teams came back from California and they certainly still had their supporters, it had only been five years since they were playing home games in New York. What what they discovered, because the Mets were a whole different entity, not just some lab experiment meant to pick up on the DNA of two departed franchises, they were a new thing. And, uh, you know, that that's what gave us the new breed as uh, they and, let's say, we were known. And uh, the, these were people rooting for the past. They were rooting for the present, rooting for the future. You know, the, the presence of 1962 and the years immediately after uh, weren't all that promising, but uh, they, they kind of, uh, amused themselves and uh, kind of rooted for themselves in the uh, in the interim. And, you know, that, that, that tided us over collectively till we got to 1969. And the, the 1940 to 1946 Giants wore uh, a form of orange and blue, which were the Mel Ott years in terms of managing, who was, of course, their, their legend. I believe he was first baseman, correct, uh, Greg? Excuse me? He, played, he, played, he played third and he played the outfield. He played third in the outfield, so excuse me uh, for all you – uh, uh, historians out there, I apologize when it comes to Mel Ott, but um, Joan Payson's such an interesting character when it comes to pre-Mets as, as well, considering that she was, uh, well, for, for one thing, we, we can, uh, I, I want to go down this rabbit hole with Joan Payson, but she was the only vote against moving to San Francisco, uh, but um, she when she owned the Giants or, or when she had a part ownership of the Giants, uh, can you remind me exactly whether she had purchased that outright or whether she, uh, uh, it, was, it was from a marriage? Or if you could go down that rabbit hole for him. Uh, you know, I have to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what the arrangements were. It's just one of those things that's kind of baked into the, the origin story of the Mets that she was a minority stakeholder in the Giants, and as you said, the only vote. I, I guess technically she sent uh, her bagman, M. Donald Grant, to cast the vote uh, at whatever board meeting they had to decide uh, the fate of the New York Giants. I mean, the, the, the majority share of the Giants was in the hands of the Stoneham family forever, uh, you know, well into the 70s. So Horace Stoneham had inherited it as a very young man from his father, Charles Stoneham. And I don't know the exact circumstances of how Joan Payson came to have a small stake in the Giants, but it it brings to mind, I want to say it was John McMullen, might have been somebody else uh, who, who said it. Uh, it was somebody who owned a uh, a small stake in the Yankees during the particularly blustering George Steinbrenner years in the 70s and 80s. Uh, somebody said, I'm going to say it was McMullen, just, just, and I may be wrong. Uh, John McMullen eventually went on to own the Houston Astros. He owned the New Jersey Devils when, when they uh, became Stanley Cup champions, lived in New Jersey. And he owned a, a small piece of the Yankees. Which uh, somebody pointed out to him says, "Well, so you're a limited partner of uh, with George Steinbrenner." He said, "There is nothing more limited than being a partner of George Steinbrenner." So that is that is a way of saying that you you might have owned a piece, you might have, for whatever reason, decided to contribute part of your fortune to the running of a baseball team. Uh, you you might have gotten some return on your investment. You might have done it because you you were in that great American tradition, a sportsman. But you weren't making the decisions. I think, you know, we we, we saw that uh, play out uh, in the machinations with Steve Cohn buying but not buying and eventually not buying the Mets. You know, he's a minority owner now, and he was trying to be the majority owner eventually without being the majority owner now, but for putting a lot of money in. And what, what we learned is that that doesn't fly. The Wilpons still got to make the calls. So whatever it was, Joan Payson, who was a uh, as, as a girl loved baseball, as a young woman loved baseball, and as uh, she matured and uh, you know steered her family's fortunes, uh, continued to love baseball. 
and she directed it you know to to the giants as best she could uh she could only own so much of them she couldn't keep them in New York, so she did the next best thing and she she created a a new chapter in New York National League history. So uh, Sabre.org has a little bit of, uh, will shine a little bit of light on for us. Um, She does come from money, and without going down that specific rabbit hole, um, she she loved baseball. She she went to games when she was a kid. She lived in Manhattan. And in 1950, she bought a single share of stock in the New York Giants. Over the course of the decade, her stockbroker, uh, somebody you mentioned, Mr. M. Donald Grant, bought 10% of the giant stock for her. And at this point, she, when she voted no, she uh, sold her shares after trying to convince Horace Stoneham to let her buy the giants and keep them in New York. He refused. So she, she's a very interesting character in all of this to, to go down. You know, right now I'm focused on 1937 to 1941, which would be a hypothetical season one. Uh, but uh, I'm I, I'm going to at, at some point have to go down this uh, this rabbit hole and maybe, which is of course my term of the uh, of the hour, uh, and and see what Joan Payson could bring to the table, going all the way back to the, the 30s. Especially considering that I do have, um, I, I am trying to explore the the Mulvey family, uh, which is the lineage of the McKeevers. Uh, and and so I am obviously looking at the the ownership level and and especially the juxtaposition Prussian era, uh, what that meant for society as a whole. Well, now with with um, no, go ahead, Greg. Sorry. No, 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 you go ahead. No, I was going to say that with the Dodgers, you know, I've been reading. Uh, right now, I'm I'm in a, a book called uh, Brooklyn Dodgers: An Informal History that only goes up about till 1944. Uh, written by Frank Graham, who apparently was uh, this this reporter with a photographic memory, and it's a very fun right. book. Sometimes he gets some he gets some dates wrong, uh, but what what's really curious right now is they were talking about the 1919-1920 season, and he talked about how. At some point, and I believe it was probably the 1919 season, he was talking about how the Brooklyn Dodgers played about 56 innings worth of baseball uh, without gaining a victory during that time. Uh, I believe it was two two losses and a tie. And it, it just reminds me of how many extra inning games the Mets have played with nothing to show for it. Well, I guess uh, there there are some years and uh, some some eras that that seem to bring that on. Yeah, Frank Graham, by the way, uh, was a one man internet <laughs> in his time because I sometimes <laughs> marvel at the idea of where did we get information from before we could just do it with you know one click practically, and Frank Graham did those histories of each team. I, I have one on my shelf for the Giants. I know he did one for the Yankees as well as the Dodgers. I think he may have done for other teams. So, you know, a lot of it was working off of, me- of, of what the time was relatively recent or even living memory. I'm sure there were there were trips to libraries and, and newspaper archives and things like that. So, you know, that stuff is so valuable. It's also always worth taking with a little grain of salt because I don't know how much fact-checking was necessarily done just because it was arduous to go back and, well, you know, I, I had to go go make another trip to some newspaper somewhere to get this box score that one. Whereas, you know, today we've got uh, baseball reference and retro sheet and it's fantastic uh as far as extra inning games yeah you know the, the Mets in their formative years uh for the you know the most famous extra inning game they ever played was in their third season their first at Shea Stadium it went 23 innings it was the second game of a doubleheader that uh, was played on May 31st, 1964. If it had gone a half hour longer, it would have been, been in a second month in June, uh, which just seemed very messy. And uh, they lost it. They played seven hours and 23 minutes and lost eight to six to the, to the Giants. 
featuring Willie Mays at one point uh, shifting the shortstop for the only time in his career. And uh, the Mets pulled a triple play in that game. Uh, their, their ratings surged because uh, as, as they meandered into prime time on Channel 9, WOR, um, What's My Line came on on CBS Channel 2, which was live. And one of the guests said to the host, oh, I was backstage watching the craziest baseball game. And when people heard the Mets were still playing, they flipped away from what's my line <laughs> to watch uh, the Mets uh, go on and on to 23 innings and lose. Uh, four years later, the Mets would play a 24-inning game whose most notable aspect was it was scoreless for 23 and a half innings. Uh, Tom Seaver started it through, I believe, 10 innings. Uh, against Don Wilson, who was sort of his opposite number with the Astros, very great right-handed pitcher. And he might have gone 10 innings, Seaver might have gone 9. I might have it backwards or uh, switched, I should say. But it was just, you know, one goose egg after another in a year that was quickly becoming what became known as the year of the pitcher because nobody hit. In the Astrodome, where offense was... You know, a foreign substance. So it just went on and on. And for their troubles, the Mets, who were, if they'd won that game, they would have been at 500, which was something that, except for the second and third game of the 1966 season, I believe, where they got to uh, they got to one and one and two and one, and it was a cause for celebration. The Mets were never at 500 in, in their early years, never certainly never above it. And they, they looked pretty good coming into 68. They were getting great pitching, even great pitching for a year. Everybody was getting great pitching, but they uh, they just waited and waited all night and could not win that, uh, that uh, getaway game in Houston because they had to get back to New York. And um, so, yeah, 25 innings in 1964, 24 innings in 1968, and the uh, the trilogy was complete in – 1974 late season game between uh, the Mets and the St. Louis Cardinals at Shea Stadium featuring a uh, September call-up or late August call-up for the Cardinals by the name of Keith Hernandez, who I think struck out and I made it out some way. That game went 25 innings, went uh, until close to three in the morning. I, it did not, it did not break the record for the longest time of game. That was still the 64 game. But the Mets lost it. Uh, they lost all three of these games. And what they had in common beyond the sleepiness and heartbreak was it was the same home plate umpire in each one, and a gentleman named Ed Sudall. Uh, somehow was calling balls and strikes over a course of, let's see, what would that be? 72 innings. <laughs> of uh, 72 innings worth of three <laughs> Mets losses. Um, so yeah, the Mets uh, and that, have had and that's a sort a, of, uh, that's, well, that's a level that you can't really, uh, measure now or ever necessarily. You'd probably just have to talk to, you'd have to do it in interviews with what he contributed to having the game go that far, having all those games. Go yeah. And it just became, you know, that, that became a, you know, Ed Sudol's participation became a signature of what became a signature of Mets baseball, for the well, you know, at that point it was the first twelve years, and you know th- those lived on as the most famous examples of the Mets in extra innings and really extra innings until 1985 and a game for a game for which uh, you know videotape exists. So I, I think it kind of lives on in more detail in people's minds uh, the 19 inning game in Atlanta on the 4th of July, which became the 5th of July, which because of rain delays lasted until almost four in the morning and became incredibly noteworthy, not to be, not, not just for the torrent of offense, the final score was 16 to 13. So, you know, it was a crazy game. Uh, the fact that when the Mets went ahead in the 18th inning, uh, Rick camp with two outs and two strikes, the pitcher for Atlanta, they had nobody left to bat hits his first and only career home run, and uh, that just pushed it into another dimension. But the Mets uh, won that game. They uh, came out at that point. It was 11-11. to 11. They scored five in the top of the 19th, 
And Ron Darling, who had never pitched in relief to that point, and I'm not sure he did again, uh, came out of the bullpen because, again, the Mets had basically nobody left. And he gave up a couple runs, but he, he nailed down the win. And that became perhaps, uh, certainly in its generation, the uh, the signature extra inning game uh, of the Mets franchise in regular season play because one year later, perhaps the most, you know, perhaps the, the greatest game in Mets history aesthetically and for, for grueling intensity. Uh, game six of the 1986 NLCS, which went a mere 16 innings. Uh, the, the Mets uh, rescuing themselves in the bottom of the ninth in Houston from what was going to be a, a tied series. And uh, you know, the uh, imposing Mike Scott in game seven for the pennants. Uh, you know, they rally for three in the ninth. Roger McDowell throws five shutout innings in relief. You think about a guy who had that year, I believe, 22 saves and 14 wins in relief when he wasn't you know, giving hot foots or hot feet uh, in the dugout. Uh, one, of, one of the more amazing seasons in, in Mets history, if you think about it. For, just for Roger McDowell, I mean, not, not all of 1986. And, uh, you know, so something that has been, you know, in, in recent weeks shown on uh, the MLB network uh, to help fill the programming void. But, you know, the, the Mets uh, score three in the 14th. Excuse me, they score one in the 14th. And Jesse Orozco comes in to close it. He's, he's bone tired because they just played a 12-inning game the day before. Speaking of extra innings, the one that Gary Carter wins in the 12th inning, it's Shea. And uh, Jesse Orozco gives up a, uh, a home run down the left field line to Billy Hatcher, who, who waves it fair, a la Carlson Fisk, and the game goes on to the 16th. The Mets score three in the, in the top of the 16th, and with all of New York and sort of a standstill because this was rush hour, and, and people not wanting to miss a pitch, uh, the Astros rally for two more, and then the the most perhaps legendary conversation in Mets history, as as long as we're <laughs> we're, we're, we're tossing 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 around best and most, uh, yeah, with uh, the Astros rallying and and their best hitter coming to to the plate, uh, Kevin Bass, a um, a conference at the mound among. Gary Carter, Keith Hernandez, and Jesse Orozco, where Jesse Orozco is basically a bystander, and Keith Hernandez, who, who essentially was in in all but form the the catcher for the 1984 Mets uh, when they had a rookie catcher most of the year. Uh, Keith Hernandez was the guy who uh, you know trod a path between first and the mound to kind of nurse a young staff through the National League. And here you've got Gary Carter, who's like a uh, something like a 10-time All-Star at that point. Uh, certainly knows the National League. He, you know, is a Hall of Fame catcher to be. So you have two, you know, the epitome of the two team leaders, wise veterans on the mound to ostensibly calm down Jesse Orozco. What's Keith Hernandez out there to say? To Jesse Orozco, who, who is still tired, who's now in, in it, coming up on three innings of work, he says uh, to Gary Carter, if you call for anything but a slider, uh, we're going to fight. Uh, there's there, there's <laughs> variations on the quote, but it's something to the effect of don't, th- don't let him throw a fastball here. And hopefully Jesse Roscoe said something to the effect of, hey, I'm right here, talk to me. But I don't know that he said that. But everybody was in agreement, and it's, it's been said that uh, by Keith, by Gary, uh, you know, just trying to lighten the mood. Uh, in a very intense moment, and you know Jesse Orozco threw one slider after another, struck out Kevin Bass, and next thing you know, as, uh, as Bob Murphy said, uh, the Mets are in the World Series Saturday night at Shea, and that that led to uh, just that, and uh, you know one extra inning game in that World Series. It only went ten innings, but uh, what a tenth inning it was! So uh, yeah, the Mets have played uh, some. Some memorable extra inning games in their time, as I suppose all all teams have. But uh, we we enjoy uh, you know burnishing their legacies and retelling their stories. So they've they've certainly played some. You know, we just actually just yesterday I was reminded was the tenth anniversary of the longest win in Mets history. Uh, because with all those those games in the '60s and '70s I was referring to, you know, those were the ones that that came without any tangible reward ten years and one day ago. The Mets played a 20-inning game in St. Louis that they actually won 
that I want to say the final was three to two. I think there was it may have been two to one. You're talking uh, about I, the I 2010 one with Jeff Francoeur? Yeah. Jeffrey, well, everybody. But, you know, with, with Mike Pelfrey <laughs> coming in the role of Ron Darling as the uh, starter in relief because there was nobody left. Uh, I, I think the um, – I, 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 what I remember – I, I, can't, I can't quite spit out the score, whether it was 2-1 to one or 3-2. to two, But um, but I, I remember most about that game other than just the, the insane futility of it for the better part of 20 innings. Now, before I look, I want to say yeah. that I remember it being two to one, but that might be that might I be the more recent one. Possibly, no, it's two to might one. Been, this one was two to one. Two to one. Okay, yeah. So, so basically, it was it was a scoreless game for 19 innings or until until the 19th inning, and I want to exonerate Frankie Rodriguez who blew the save <laughs> in box score terms because Frankie Rodriguez was up every inning from probably the ninth on warming up in case he was needed because you would need your closer to come in and close theoretically close the game, except the Mets never took a lead. So Jerry Manuel would, you know, call down the bullpen, you know, get Rodriguez up. Well, he can sit down now. Well, get Rodriguez up. He can sit down. So Frankie Rodriguez is out in the bullpen, basically throwing a complete game shutout to nobody because he's warming up over and over. So he finally gets in the game in the bottom of the 19th, gives up a run. It's, it's hard to blame the guy. And in the 20th, you know, the Mets get the one back. And uh, off, if I'm not mistaken, a pair of Cardinal position players. He got the which win. Which this was... This was before that. If you remember, a couple of years ago, there was like an epidemic of position players pitching in relief in baseball. Uh, it, it just seemed that, that managers were, were giving up. There was some sort of analytic trend saying, why bother with, with the bothering relief pitchers? And it, it led to some, some pretty horrific moments on the mound uh, throughout baseball, I think. But it, you know, this is a list with a nothing, nothing, one, one game. And Tony La Russa, uh basically said, you know, I don't want to burn any more relief pitchers. Uh, and I, I forget who his, his position players were, but he used a couple of them. And that's how the Mets managed to score a run. And Mike Pelfrey came in to hold it off. But, you know, as, as I, I remember this game being referred to like by people who didn't watch it as a classic. <laughs> there was nothing classic about it except for, you know, the outcome, which was to say it went 20 innings and the Mets won. But it, it was a uh, an excruciating six hours and 53 minutes. I mean, yes, uh, pockets of it were, were fascinating and entertaining. Uh, Jeff Frank or Alex Cora, I remember, made a great play and had to exit because he hurt himself. My, I think it was it was basically the end of the second Mike Jacobs era. Every you know everybody contributed. It's like the it's like the JFK heist and Goodfellas. You know they called on everybody to get involved, and uh, <laughs> with reference. all of that, we we, we we got a one got a one run win, and then they had nothing left. I remember John Main got got lit up the next night on Sunday Night Baseball, and then uh, but but in, in in more typically Metsian fashion in 2013, a, a season where the Mets seemed to be playing a a 14 or 16 inning game every other night for a while, uh, you know the crown jewel of 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 the genre was in fact another 20 inning game. This one at City Field, the longest game ever played there. Uh, fortunately, it was an afternoon game. I say fortunately because I was sitting there. Uh, on the Saturday, it started at one o'clock. Uh, lo- lovely weather, uh, which was nice for, the, for those of us who were sitting there for for what became you know six plus hours. And it was supposed it was supposed to be a great pitching duel because it was Matt Harvey and Jose Fernandez of the Marlins, both of them you know having breakout seasons. And to a certain extent, it lived up to the hype. They both went about seven, I think. Harvey wrenched his back a little bit, and we all gasped because this was, you know, Harvey days. And uh, but they eventually exited, and you know, the 2013 Mets had sort of their, uh, you know, they they had little little peaks, but they had massive valleys, and they were in a massive valley at this stage. And I think it basically ruined careers. I mean, it ended Rick and Keel's career basically. It, Ended, I think, Colin Cowgill's career as a Met, certainly. Uh, so I think it, it, it hastened Ike Davis's demotion to Las Vegas. 
Uh, I don't remember if, if Ruben Tejada was somehow dinged by all of this, but it just they made a lot of moves, and eventually that they, they had a pretty good run. I mean, not that you could tell at the end of the season. They had a pretty good run in 2013, kind of made some changes. You know, Eric Young Jr. comes in. But this this is sort of the the prologue to all of that because the Mets had become just so pathetic that they could play 20 innings and score one run against the Marlins, who were basically no better. So it was a long, long day at the city field. The Sean Markham era. Yes, Sean Markham. (laughs) Sean Markham, who was the unsung hero, as they said. So a phrase I I, I always find interesting, it was attached to Sid Fernandez coming out of Game 7 of the 1986 World Series because he threw, I think, two and two-thirds innings of, uh, or maybe it was just two and a third, of scoreless baseball to kind of turn that, the momentum, shut off the Red Sox momentum, keep the game at 3 nothing, and then the Mets could come back eventually on the Red Sox. And everybody said, he's the unsung hero. But, well, you all saw it. You're all singing his praises, so how was he unsung? Sean Markham was kind of in that role. He was the long reliever for marathons in 2013. An unlucky starter. Uh, his, his season, he was sort of like Jason Vargas a couple of years ago where his season started late because of injury, and he could never quite get on track. But he was actually pitching a lot of bad luck and really – he would he would have a a pleasant Met legacy of his own, except that after the Mets got rid of him because they just you know he was like one and nine or something, and even in the the era of we don't take one loss record seriously, it was still one and nine. <laughs> um, Sean Markin made the mistake of either tweeting or saying to a reporter that he was while he was not pitching while he was on the disabled list for somebody else, I think saying uh, he was watching the Mets, watching watching their announcers, and something about how they, they know nothing about baseball. How dare they criticize me? Well, the one thing you can't do uh, if you want to curry favor from Mets fans is criticize Gary Cohn, Keith Hernandez, and Ron Darling as announcers. And it's clear that two of those guys had World Series rings that I don't believe Sean Markham does. And uh, the other one is going to be a Ford Frick uh, Hall of Famer uh, in a matter of time. So uh, Sean Markham uh, can go stand on a mound all night for all I care after that. But yes, it was a it was a, a bizarre little interlude in Mets history. It wasn't three men on third base, but it was uh, it was twenty five men playing uh, for for what felt like uh, twenty five innings uh, basically every night. But uh, it only happened now and then. Only now and then, uh, Greg. I got to keep it tight till ten o'clock. Uh, so, uh, first off, I appreciate you joining me to uh, to talk a little legacy today and, and just, you know, keep that, that river flowing, if you will, even as we, we halt here. And, you know, talking about uh, – I'll, I'll loop it over to you for shameless plugs and last words, but you talking about, you know, 1986, and it just reminds me, too, how hard it is, even when you think you have it in the bag. Uh, you're going to play a 16-inning game just to make it to the World Series. You know, you look to the, the Dodgers and how many times they played the Yankees. You know, th- those teams were so great, you would have figured they would have gotten at least another World Series before 1955. You look at the 52-53 teams, you think, how could they not have beaten the Yankees? But it's just it, it's just the way it goes. Well, you know, opponents sometimes have something to say about your fate whether it was you know, the Yankees at the absolute pinnacle of their dynasty thwarting the Dodgers, whether it was the 88 Dodgers thwarting what appeared to be an unstoppable, unstoppable Mets team from winning a second World Series, for that matter, thwarting what appeared to be an equally unstoppable 88 A's team from winning a World Series, whether it's – I was having this discussion with a, fr- a friend this week, you know, the, the only thing – the 99 and 2000 Mets couldn't do for, for all that we uh, cherish them for was beat the Braves in 99 and the Yankees in 2000. That's all. So some, you know, I, I think we uh, sometimes forget that other teams play long extra inning games and other teams have ridiculous circumstances befall them and have unfortunate seasons and have scandals. Uh, we are myopic, I suppose, in that way. But, uh, you know, that's why we're fans of certain teams. And uh, I suppose as long as we're aware that we're not the only ones, just sort of how I'm getting through this this whole thing. You know, it's not just 
not just the Mets thing. It's not just the baseball thing. It's it's a world and a life thing. And all we can do is, uh, as they say, keep, keep our distance and uh, and hope for the best. And when uh, there's baseball back, uh, we will reduce the distance perhaps, and we'll continue to hope for the best. That we will. Greg, thank you so much, uh, as always, and I look forward to talking more Legacy with you again another time. Thank you, Sam. And thank you all for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. We will catch you next time. Take care.